You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. You know, there's growing agreement between Republicans and Democrats that something needs to be done about the number of people we incarcerate. In Michigan, we spend about $2 billion a year on corrections. That's more, for instance, than we spend on the entire higher education system here in Michigan. As we debate ways to draw down the number of inmates behind bars and address racial disparities, what can we learn from past attempts to overhaul our prison system? What missteps can we avoid? Marie Gottschalk is a political science professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She specializes in criminal justice reform, and she's the author of Caught, the Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. Marie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Yeah. So uh, I, I am one of the people who's a little uh, floored by the number of conservatives i see it seems like every couple of months or so coming out and saying you know what uh, this whole idea of over incarceration uh, and uh, disparities inside the criminal justice system that's real and uh, they are, they are announcing in an in increasing number that they're bothered by this too does that surprise you in any way doesn't surprise me because what's more surprising to me is that for all the talk about that we're in a reform moment, the actual reform that's <laughs> happened <aren't> doing has it. <laughs> been very limited. So that if you look at, we peaked at prison and jail population in 2009, it's been decreasing to about 2014 when it dipped up again, uh, only about, uh, it's about a 3.6, 3.7% drop, and about half of that was driven by California. Yeah. So if you take that out, and if you look at the biggest year-to-year drop in the state prison population uh, during those years, it would take us about nine decades to get back in the state prison population to where we were in 1980. So We're not moving very fast. No, and I think the other thing is that in some ways this presidential campaign has reminded us that we're back to the 1960s and 70s and using law and order politics uh, to criminalize um, and mobilize a, a population, um, you know, create a, a certain political Preying on fears. Right, uh, and in I order think to... that's one of the shortcomings of this sort of left-right combined moment is that a lot of it is knitted together on issues of economics without fundamentally challenging the kind of pernicious politics that gave us mass incarceration in the first place. Yeah. And uh, you can see President Bill Clinton getting himself into trouble this week because he's still kind of dragging that dead dog of a bill of 1994 crime <laughs> bill, trying to defend it and bringing a back some of that um, inflammatory rhetoric about the 19-year-old, you know, the 13-year-old crack kids or, you know, and and, and that that stuff is not dead, even on the so-called progressive Democratic side. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about that 1994 crime bill and how much you lay uh, at the feet uh, of that bill in terms of what we're facing now. I I think there's still a debate about... uh, about how responsible that was for either accelerating or creating this sort of uh, this culture of, of, of incarceration. So the upward trend in the prison population, the steep 
spike began in the 70s nationally, but it happened at different rates in different places. So 1980s was a big, steep upward trend, for example, in California. Texas was kind of slow, and it wasn't really till the 1990s that it took off. I think that crime bill is important in that it gave incentives for states to build prisons, gave federal money. And more importantly, it created the rhetoric and reinforced the rhetoric of law and order punitive politics. And that that rhetoric trickles down to the states and reinforced the tendency towards three strikes laws in the states, mandatory minimums in the states, demonizing people who have been charged or have committed crimes. So we can't just look at, you know, did it build more prisons, but we have to also look at did it legitimize saying certain things and certainly racially charged uh, observations about criminal justice that then feed into more punitive policies that are passed at the local level. Right. So it's level. a turning point in, in that sense, uh, in the in the sort of uh, narrative uh, that, that surrounds the, the debate. That it, right. It, I don't know if I would say it's a turning point so much as that it reinforced things. You know, Willie Horton was 1988, right? So yeah. that was another big moment sure. in, in this. So this was, I would say, another defining moment in the mid-1990s, 1994, 95, was when that term super predator was coined and yeah. became very popular. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Marie Gottschalk, a political science professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She specializes in criminal justice reform. She's the author of Caught, The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. We are talking about uh, the, the talk about reform, about criminal justice justice reform. Uh, right and left seem to be coming together around some issues there, but how much is actually being done? Uh, Maria, I want to talk to you a little about this this tension that I think runs through this, uh, uh, this debate. Uh, and I'll start with an example here uh, in the city of Detroit. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we had an incident at a gas station, which is gas stations are magnets for crime mm-hmm. uh, in this city. Uh, the uh, an, an inordinate amount of the crime, violent crime in the city happens at gas stations or right around them. And so the city has installed bright lights and super high definition cameras at gas stations to be able to catch more people who are uh, committing these crimes. And a 20 year old woman appears in a video that was released uh, pulling uh, a pistol out of the glove compartment of her car as though it were a hairbrush or, or a purse, uh, sticking it into her pants and going over to another car in which she'd had some sort of conflict over an, a car accident or something and just firing into the window of, of the car, shooting uh, the driver several times. We see images like this all the time, of course, in, in the city of Detroit, in other places. Uh, and there, there's no question that uh, this is behavior that does not uh, that, that doesn't comport with you know civilization in in a city. It doesn't comport with the things that we need people doing. The tension I want to point out, though, is between saying, look, we, we can't have that. Nobody, I think, thinks we can uh, have uh, cities sort of plagued by this kind of violence. Uh, but but the reasons behind it, the place uh, that, that we almost seem to never go is what produces a 20-year-old woman who 
you know, handles a gun that 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 easily and that wantonly on our streets, uh, and that that gets to that um, the, the 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 dialogue around this 1994 crime bill. Uh, you had people like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton saying, talking about uh, these kinds of perpetrators in ways that seemed to diminish the look behind the incidents, right? I mean, uh, the, the problem there is uh, dealing with this as, as a criminal justice, as an immediate sort of response to the incident, doesn't ever get you uh, to the place that you want to go. Right, so some people want to claim that something like the 1994 crime bill has reduced incidents like the one you've talked about. Which but it if, clearly is not. Right, yeah. so if you compare the United States with Canada or Western European countries, you'll see almost exactly an up-and-down flow of crime since the early 1970s to today, uh-huh. the peaks and the valleys. It's from a higher base in the United States, but it matches almost exactly. So you'll see Canada's crime rate going down significantly from the early to the mid 1990s. You'll see the same thing in Germany, but they didn't pass these draconian laws. Um, You'll see the spikes in these other countries, but they didn't respond to these spikes by locking so many people up right. and so many poor and disadvantaged people up. Uh, I just finished service on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Mass Incarceration. We did a two-year study, and one of the fundamental conclusions from that study is that incarceration doesn't reduce crime, that the average crime reduction effect of incarceration is small and the effect diminishes with the scale of incarceration. So locking more people up won't reduce your... Right, so we have these dramatic images and it creates a kind of broken thermostat that, in fact, crime has been going down and it's even been going down in high crime areas, but many people across the country continue to think that crime is going up. I think what we also have is a problem with conflating two issues. One is an incarceration issue, and one is a crime issue. What we've seen in other countries who've wanted to decarcerate, and even in California under Governor Ronald Reagan, there was a major decarceration. It happened by changing penal policy, by getting rid of mandatory minimums, by um, reducing the number of people that you send to prison and for how long you send them for prison. That's the incarceration problem. There's a separate problem that we have in this country that despite the crime drop, there are pockets of the United States with unacceptably high violent crime rates. You know, you can see them in North Philadelphia, in in my city. Uh Um, You've obviously got the pockets in Detroit. And for those issues, we need to attack the root causes of crime, which is massive unemployment, massive poverty, unconscionable levels of social and economic inequality. That's going to take a long-term solution. It's going to cost money. But in the meantime, locking up so many poor, disadvantaged people from these communities is not reducing crime right. in those communities. Well, and, and to back to my example, uh, writing off this 20-year-old woman because of what she did, right. which, which is the sort of reflexive uh, nature of the criminal justice system, only feeds feeds the problem. I mean, you are you are you are perpetuating the cycle by deciding that uh, that there is no hope for that individual or for people like her. And the interesting thing is, she is in some ways very redeemable to the extent that she's young, and we know people will age out of crime. Yes. And so to give her a life sentence, lock her up forever, uh, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's not going to have a great crime reduction effect. It will have uh, 
bad effects on her family, on her neighborhood. And that's very hard for us to accept. And sometimes we go back and we, we recreate American history and say, well, we're a frontier society. We've always <laughs> been punitive and eye-for-an-eye culture. And we forget that we actually have a very forgiving history. Uh, we, and Michigan was the first state to abolish capital punishment. Yeah. It was a pioneer in the world. The United States had moments of, you had an abolition moment against slavery, but also against capital punishment. It was a, a leader in the world in that. Uh, and we've, we forget that. We also forget that for much of our history, a life sentence in many places meant 10 to 12 years. If you kept your head down, you didn't cause more trouble while you were in prison, uh, you were released by a parole board or you got executive clemency. And many people who've committed some of the most serious crimes uh, have the lowest recidivism rate. So one of the problems that we have is that we've lost the distinction between someone who's committed a violent offense and someone who's a violent offender. Yeah. And many people who've committed violent offenses are no longer major threats to public safety. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the, the, the racial context mm-hmm. here, which, of course, uh, this makes some people uncomfortable. And I actually think uh, that's where the sort of right-left coalition uh, over criminal justice reform often breaks down uh, is in the acknowledgement of the role that race plays, uh, not only in uh, the, the, the problem, but in some of the solutions that, that some of the things that we've done in the past to try to fix this have racial dynamics that that prevent them from having the effect that we think they should. Uh, uh, talk about some how that sort of uh, plays out here. Well, we keep talking about this right-left coalition, but I don't really see Newt Gingrich sitting down <laughs> with Black Lives Matter. No. And one of the problems of all the focus on the so-called right-left coalition, which frankly is dominated by the right yes. and by enthusiasm for right on crime, is that it's sucking all the political air out of what's really happening in criminal justice reform. And some of the most promising things um, are happening at the local level and at the state level. And what we're seeing now are, you know, mobilizations to focus on district attorney's races, which have often been sleeper races or token opposition. We now have Black Lives Matter uh, focusing on district attorneys who, frankly, haven't been representing their communities and putting up real opposition and political pressure on them. And so this kind of trying to cut these elite deals in Washington and say this is where the movement is, I frankly think that things are too polarized in Washington, that these so-called great reform bills are important, but they're not fundamentally important. And that the biggest changes are going to happen by these outside groups who are pressuring more legacy organizations like the NAACP and political parties like where Hillary Clinton is being pressured now in the Democratic race uh, to, to do something different on criminal justice reform. And we not having political attention to all this ferment that predates Black Lives Matter. Sure. Uh, people mobilizing, uh, formerly incarcerated people are mobilizing into groups. People who are fighting these usurious uh, telephone costs for people who are calling outside of prison or uh-huh. the shackling of pregnant women. That whole move, all those movements are getting ignored because of this so-called right-left coalition. Really at a very elite level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the racial context for this uh, is historical. I mean, right. it, it goes back to the country's founding and, of course, the, the, the inequality that was just sewn into 
the Constitution from the from the beginning. It it plays out differently now, but not any less harshly in some ways on on African Americans. But it's t- important to see how it plays out differently uh-huh. Uh-huh. because. Um, Racism tells us everything about American politics, and it tells us nothing. (laughs) And that racism has to adapt to a new political context. And so whether it's Michelle Alexander talking about the kind of colorblindness context Uh in which it adapts to, or what I talk about in my book is that what we're seeing is very punitive policies migrating to other policies other populations, right? So some states that are very white states like Idaho and Wyoming have very, very high incarceration rates. And we find some of the tactics that were used to fight the war on drugs are now being used to demonize and fight um, immigrants and migrants uh-huh. in the United States. So just the, the racial component or the way that racism sustains itself um, you know, I, I like one of my favorite quotes from Malcolm X is that, you know, racism is like a Cadillac. You know, you have a new model every year. <laughs> um, and I love saying that because yeah. I'm in the Motor City right now, right? <laughs> That's right. Everyone but, here can relate. But, but, it, but it can relate. And it raises, you know, extremely vexing issues for uh, African-American political leaders, uh, community leaders, because they're gra- some of them are grappling with these high rates of violence, but these high rates of incarceration. Yeah. And how do you say, yes, our communities are hurting, we need to address that violence, but not by demonizing people who are in those communities. And some of the perpetrators are also victims, right? And right. many of the men and women who are in prisons today have uh, suffered severe violence, both uh, sexual and physical in their own lives or in their own family lives. And as the former mayor of my city used to say, you know, the difference between a perpetrator and a victim is often who pulls the gun first. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Marie Gottschalk. She is the political science professor at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, specializes in criminal justice reform. She's also the author of Caught, the Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. We are talking about criminal justice reform. Uh, Talk about uh, quickly the two or three things that you think could really make a difference uh, in a short period of time uh, in terms of uh, decarceration or, or criminal justice uh, reform, things that, that maybe we're not, uh, we're not thinking about or certainly in Washington they aren't really talking about uh, getting done? I think it's important to remember that the carceral state wasn't just built by laws, but it was by people on the front lines of the criminal justice system deciding to use their enormous discretion in a more punitive fashion rather than a less punitive fashion. And so focusing on trying to pass more laws in this uh, polarized environment uh, justifies these very small-bore solutions. Uh, Right now we have the Federal Bureau of Prisons constantly going to Congress saying we need more money to run prisons. They have, as the American Bar Association said in a report a couple of years ago, without any changes to the federal sentencing guidelines, they could eliminate thousands of years of unnecessary incarceration through full implementation of statutes that are already on the books. There's a second look provision. There's release to halfway houses. There's the use of compassionate release they've been unwilling to do. Likewise, 
We need prosecutors who are going to be mavericks, and we're seeing some of them. John Chisholm in um, Milwaukee is one example of them. Um, we also have uh, Kenneth Thompson in Brooklyn, who's decriminalized marijuana, successfully prosecuted uh, a police officer in the shooting death of a, a civilian recently. We have the Bronx DA, Darcel Clark, who's now created a special unit uh, to investigate the cesspool of Rikers Island, the big jail in New York City, and she calls it the worst neighborhood that I have. So we have district attorneys who are willing to step out yeah. and do something differently uh, without necessarily changing the laws on the books. Governors and presidents could use their powers of executive clemency. They've let those atrophy. We used to, uh, you know, use executive clemency and commutations widely to correct miscarriages of justice, but also to make larger statements about the criminal justice system. Right. Um, Presidents and, and governors, President Obama has been very stingy, He's been and governors very as slow, well. Sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, thank you very much for being here, uh, Marie Gottschalk, political science professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, author of Caught, The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. We'll be back after a short break. <laughs> 